hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Today, we have our guest agent, Emmy Nordstrom-Higdon from Westwood Creative Artists back again. They were on a week or so ago where they discussed the submissions without the authors on the podcast. And today, they're back joining us with two guests, Tyler and Vicky, who will be joining us to discuss their queries. So as per usual, let us mosey on in. Tyler, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Will you begin by reading us your query letter? Yes. Dear guest agent, my novel Super Ballsy is a 37,000 word contemporary middle grade about a disabled eighth grader with cerebral palsy who wants to get back at a school bully the only way he knows how, the school-wide dodgeball tournament. It's Ryan O'Connell's special meets the amazing Edie Eckert by Rosie Jones. Preston's cerebral palsy left him feeling isolated and kept him from reaching out to most of his classmates. He had one friend at school, but his one friend has moved away, and with only miles left to torment him, he feels like he has to do something drastic. He's able to walk in a slow, jerky, unsteady pace that no one would call athletic, and he knows he can't do it alone. So now he has to win friends and influence people to create a winning team in his dreaded PE class to make sure Miles won't win the dodgeball tournament again this year. 
all the while falling in love with his new best friend, Eric. Tyler Darnell is a teacher and writer in Houston, Texas, where he also studied English and creative writing. He was born with cerebral palsy and lived much of his young life in leg braces. <laughs> Later, he discovered he was different in other ways as he saw with husband. He has yet to see these experiences put on the page, so he decided to make it happen. Thank you for your time and talent. Awesome, Tyler. Thank you. And for our listeners, you can't see now, but Tyler's beautiful black cat has joined the conversation and he's sitting there on the desk and that's absolutely gorgeous. So I am loving the cat right now. All right. Emmy, let me hand across to you. Let us know what you thought of that query letter. Sure. Well, first of all, it's so exciting to get to actually speak with authors about their query letters. This is a really unique format and it's not something I've gotten to do before. So um, I know that you are probably both uh, nervous as authors, but this is new for me too. So (laughs) we can just dive in together. Um, And also my cat has also been very participatory lately. So it's possible we'll have many silent cat guests on this show. I love the concept of this book. I was really excited to see the query because I represent a lot of authors who have chronic illness and disabilities And it's really something that's still a struggle to encourage editors to acquire is disability representation and illness representation in books. And it's just always so exciting for me when authors are writing those stories because there's really a gap in the market and in representation that way, both for children, but also in adult novels. So I I am super excited about the concept of this book. My first comment on the book itself is just that it's a little bit short. 37,000 words is a little on the short side for middle grade. I wouldn't say it's totally unacceptable. But if it's possible to bump it up to like 40,000 by the time that you're actually querying it, Tyler, I think that that would be like a nice round number to start off with. It also gives you a little bit of space when your agent, your eventual agent um, or your eventual editor start digging their claws in and asking you to trim stuff. Um, It gives you a little more space to play with. So that's that was my first kind of impression. The other is that I love that the title is catchy and that it's short and that it like really gets across the vibe of what I think you're going for with this book, but it is a little bit gendered. And I wonder if that's something that I don't know if it's something that would bother me or not if I saw it in my inbox, because it is a masculine main character. So I don't know that it's a huge problem, but it's just something to consider as you're sending it out. Definitely in terms of sensitivity issues, I would say that middle grade and young adult editors are like miles beyond where adult editors are in terms of their level of consideration of those sorts of things. And so it might just be something that could be polarizing unintentionally. So that's one thing to consider. I loved the format of this query letter, though. It's short, it's quick, it gives you all the information that you need. The one thing that I will say is that uh, you introduce Miles partway through the paragraph without telling us who that name applies to. So I would say that like specifying who Miles is, you know, and I know because I've read the sample, but I wasn't sure when I first read the paragraph about the summary of the book. And then the other thing that I would add is that your comps are fantastic, but I would love to know why you picked them. So tell me like what it is about uh, special and about the amazing Eddie Eckhart that apply to your book. Is it the writing? Is it the characters? Is it the themes? I th- I would just love to know why it is that you picked those. And your bio is perfect. I giggled. I loved it. I always tell people to tell me about their pets. So if you have a cat, I would throw them in there too. But <laughs> I love, I think that it's a very like concise and appropriate way to introduce yourself in your letter. So I thought that this was a pretty strong letter overall. Can I ask a question there, Emmy? So Tyler Tyler wrote about himself in the third person as opposed Hmm. to in the first person. I've actually never seen that done in a in a query letter. So is that like quite usual and it's just not something I've seen or you know is it something you recommend or not? You don't mind either way. 
I don't mind either way. I mean, I think that I would change it to first person if it were me. But I also think that like, if you're signing your letter, we're going to know it's you anyway. And it's definitely something I've seen in query letters before. I, th- I feel like sometimes people like it, it almost reads more like a book jacket that way, or people like to make it feel as though it's like a little more um, like it's easier to pitch yourself if you're not writing in first person sometimes. So I think that's why that happens, but it's not something that threw me off at least while I was reading it. Perhaps an exercise for our listeners is, you know, when it comes to that author by a paragraph, write it in the third person. Yes. <laughs> certainly it is easier that way. And then perhaps change it back to the, the first person just before. Pitching. Absolutely. Honestly, so, I'm always shocked how many of my clients, when I ask them for a bio for something, struggle, like as professional authors, struggle to write a bio. It's so funny. There have been a number of them that I've been like, just send me point form and I'll turn it into a bio because people have a really hard time like writing about or pitching themselves. Which is why I feel for people who write memoir, man, yeah. because that's not just a paragraph. <laughs> that's, that's a whole damn book. Okay, exactly. So before we move on to those pages, Tyler, do you have any questions for Emmy or myself? Yeah, I have had some traction. Like I did a queer kidlet mentorship with Jen Reese. Mm-hmm. I've gotten like some highlights foundation scholarship for certain things. Should I mention that in my query letter as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can either throw that in your bio or if it's specific to the book, you could put it in your first paragraph, but I would say it's probably most appropriate in the bio. Like maybe right after uh, where you write about what you studied. Any accomplishments that people have, if you have like, even if you have, I always tell people like if you have any kind of bylines or past experience, it just helps agents and editors kind of know that you have that kind of experience, that you've worked with some feedback before, that like you've got and some recognition and that you've also been like out in the writing community a little bit. I think that's always helpful to know. I had a question a little bit about the title. You mentioned it, w- it could be read as gendered. In my, I guess in my writing of the book, it was more of a misnomer. I know. And I love that it refers like, cause it refers to the dodgeball, I'm guessing like the sort of like the spunk of the character and the dodgeball. Is that what you were getting at with the title? Well, it's also a misnomer for cerebral palsy because nobody yeah. knows how to say it. Totally. And I like, that's why I say I'm sort of mixed on it because I I like it. I like that it has all those layers. So I don't know. I don't think it would upset me if I read it in my inbox. It's just something I guess to have in the back of your mind, but I really, I do like it. So I'm sort of, yeah, I'm on the fence about it. It's just something to think about, I think. I, I really liked it, but then yeah. you know, I don't necessarily think about it in that way. And that's why it's important that we get so many different perspectives on the show, because there's mm-hmm. that whole saying, which is completely wrong. It's not do unto others as you would like them to do unto <laughs> you. It's do unto others as they would like to have you do unto them. Exactly. So, you know, but honestly, you, you know, like something doesn't mean someone else will. So it is something to yeah. consider. I think that I'm like hypersensitive to gender issues and I, it still doesn't bother me. I still thought it was really cute. So I like, it's just something to kind of have in the back of your mind that like, I think if you're going to keep the title that way, just make sure that the writing sample shows that like, it's something that you're mindful of, if that makes sense. Awesome. Okay. So Tyler, will you, for our listeners, take us through what's in those opening pages before Emmy discusses them? Okay, this is going to be short and sweet too. Preston's at his twice a year checkup where his specialty doctor asks him questions about what he wants to be able to do and assesses his walking ability like a show pony while he dreads the eighth grade year with only his school bully to look forward to. That's a really good synopsis of the content that's in there, to be honest. You've got this nail. <laughs> so the I would say I have a little bit of feedback and it's honestly not 
I don't think that it has anything to do with what you've written or with the concept of the book itself. I think that you're going in a really interesting direction, but this isn't the sample that I would choose to put at the top of your book. I think that's the biggest thing. I feel like for me, so when I'm reading a writing sample, especially for a book that's for children, what I always have in the back of my mind is when I I started out in publishing as a bookseller. So I always think about like standing in like the kids section of the bookstore where I used to work and watching kids like pick out books, pick up things. And like their parents or their teachers are sometimes there being like, come on, pick something. And like, you know, they're flipping through and they're like reading a page or two to get a sense of what the book is about. And it's really difficult to grab their attention. And I think that that's what editors always have in their minds and what agents always have in their minds when they start reading a book as well, because the biggest thing that you want your writing sample to do, and honestly, I think that this actually applies to both of the queries that we're going to talk about today, is that you really want your sample to like grab the reader like right from the start and make them not want to put that book down, right? I think that what you've done in this sample is really interesting because it shows us a lot of like really great character building. It shows us a lot of the challenges that your main character faces like in their life in general. It's fairly introspective. But what we don't get a lot in, of in this sample is the plot that revolves around like the main conflict of the book. So we get a lot of really interesting stuff. But usually what I encourage my authors to get right up in their first page is who your main character is, what the main conflict of the book is, and what sort of like barriers and facilitators. So what things will help the character and what things will hurt the character as they're going through trying to resolve that conflict. We see lots of things that like have to do with the character and that are going on in their life, but we don't really get very much about like the relationship between the main character and their sort of like nemesis or their school or dodgeball. And those are the things that I think are really hooky about this book. I think that's what's going to grab a young reader right from the start is that like dodgeball and especially a kid who's not particularly athletic. I think that's something that a lot of kids can relate to that anxiety of like, oh, I'm not good at this, but like, I really have to pull it out of the bag on this one. And so I would restructure and I wouldn't just pull a later chapter out as your writing sample. Like I would actually restructure the book so that we start like right in the action and we get a really good sense of your voice and your character right up from the start. I always tell people that like in the sample, especially because it's so short, like anything that's not pulling the reader through to get them to the next section and to make me want to read more is superfluous. Like you should really move it somewhere else in the book. And that's not to say that the content that's here isn't good. It's just, I think, not in the right place yet. Awesome, Emmy. Thank you. Tyler, uh, what questions do you have for Emmy? I'm like, I'm trying to formulate one. <laughs> but uh, I was, um, I guess, thinking about, I guess the way it's formatted now, it's kind of like the frame. Because mm -hmm. later, because the clock is like six months. And so late, when he gets to the appointment again, six months later, it's a very different situation. Right. I guess. I would worry less about chronology and more about the pacing. That would be my advice to you as you're thinking about where to put the events in the book, because we can always encounter, you know, like I, I think that the ticking clock is good in the sense that like you have the two appointments, but I feel like they don't actually have to be evenly spaced necessarily within the book itself. So I would th consider like where you might be able to move sections so that they, we can start like really in the action of the story. And I think that that will ultimately help a reader to like feel immersed and feel 
feel emotionally connected to your character too. Because I feel like what happens a lot in books that are issue driven is that sometimes, and it's happening a little bit here, is that sometimes we want to write books to speak to, you know, the reader that doesn't normally get spoken to, right? We want to see them like see themselves reflected for maybe the first time in a book. But what can sometimes happen and what can sometimes hurt your sales, which ultimately will hurt the chances of the book getting into the hands of those kids, is that if we lead with difference, then readers will, other readers will sometimes feel alienated. So we want to really make sure that like the story is front and center right in the beginning. And then we can dig into all of those issues later once the reader is kind of invested in the story and invested in the character and already finding ways that they can relate to them, even though they're different from them. Great, great point there, Emmy. And, and also in terms of your structural framing, I would much rather focus on things like inciting incidents, um, yes. key events, where the similarities are so that the reader immediately identifies with the character in what are the things that, you know, like you said, all kids, well, not all kids, a lot of kids, I could certainly relate to being the crappy kid at sport um, and being there and being highly stressed out about it, etc. So 100% agree. Start with something super compelling. Start with something dramatic and show us this character out of their depths because any kid can relate to that. There'll be some instance in their life where they felt stupid or whatever and, and, and like they couldn't measure up. And you want to show conflict in that opening chapter, you know, internal and external conflict. So I feel like everything Emmy has suggested is an excellent entry point because we see the character's anxiety. We see this external conflict with this other character. We see all of this playing out and kids reading it immediately go, I can identify with that. And then you can have your first chapter like be the second or the third chapter, you know, so it's not, don't worry about the framing of it of, a, of the six months, six months, exactly structurally, you more want to focus on, on those other things. Overall, though, I really hope that you find a great home for this book, because I think that the story is really, really cool. I think it's something that like, I think that especially being a person who like I have disabilities and chronic illness, and I've been an athlete like since I was extremely young. I've loved sports and I'm not great at them, but like, I think they're super fun. And I think that that's something that people don't think about with disabled kids or with disabled people in general. I think like when they think of, you know, like sick or disabled kids, like playing sports, they think of like sad, tragic, like documentaries about kids overcoming obstacles, or they think like superhuman Paralympian kind of, and I love the like day-to-day life of this kid just being like, you know what, this bully sucks and I'm going to beat them at dodgeball. I love that. So I think that you have a really, like, I think you have a gem on your hands here. I think it just needs like a little bit of polishing to really bring that out. Awesome. Emmy, thank you so much. Tyler, while you have Emmy here, are there any other questions that you have that may not even relate to mm-hmm. your query, to publishing in general, anything before we move on to Vicky? I know I'm putting you I on just, the spot. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I, I think I asked all my questions. I just hate your your time this was kind of a shot in the dark so the fact that i got some feedback is really helpful thank you this is so awesome and i have i i marked up your query with comments in um like in words so you can go through and read some more like detailed feedback and also like if after that you want to get in touch if you have other questions that come up down the line like you're more than welcome to always my dms are always open on twitter or you can always uh, connect with me through bianca too awesome thanks so much emmy and remember for our ko-fi supporters those Mm. uh 
uh, marked up query letters will be on our Kofi platform. So for those who support us monthly, we'll have access to both of Emmy's letters. Those who support us as a one-off will have access to one of her sort of marked up query letters. And these are hugely helpful. Not everyone learns by listening. I know for me, I struggle with that. I'm someone who learns by looking at something and reading it and seeing how someone's taken it apart, perhaps, and put it back together. So for those of you who learn the same way, that's a great opportunity for you to access that information. Thank you so much, Tyler. I'm giggling, Bianca, because that's where people will get the like unfiltered. I did this at eight o'clock at night, (laughs) like picky comments too. (laughs) Sometimes the picky stuff is the stuff that really helps us. So, uh, so that was Tyler. It was wonderful to speak to him. Our next writer on the podcast is Vicky. Welcome, Vicky. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. All right. So before we begin, Vicky, will you read us your query letter? Sure. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I am honored to submit this query to you as I am an avid listener of your podcast and love the feedback you provide every week. Diary of a Criminal Mind, the Psyche of Jonathan Kurz is a completed 77,000 word contemporary psychological novel. It is a standalone book with series potential that would attract readers interested in psychological thrillers, serial killers, true crime, and the psychological basis of offending behavior. This book blends the personal musings of the offender from Diary of a Murderer with the evolution of a serial killer as seen in the Dexter series and the psychological analysis of the silent patient. Dr. Emily Salazar is a seasoned correctional psychologist in a California men's maximum security prison. With the goal of researching what psychological influences motivate criminal thinking and behavior, she establishes a therapeutic group of eight inmates with different offending and psychiatric backgrounds. For the purposes of treatment and to explore the roots of their delinquent behavior, the inmates are asked to write in a diary every day. Through his diary entries, notorious serial killer Jonathan Kurz describes his chaotic childhood, his placement in foster care, his conduct disordered behavior as a child and a teen, and details each of his 12 homicides. Despite his efforts thus far to evade prison staff's conceptualization of him, Dr. Salazar is determined to use the information in Mr. Kerr's diary to reveal his subconscious motivations, personality disorders, and victim choice. Though she attempts to uphold boundaries in her professional relationship with Mr. Kerr's, at times Dr. Salazar finds herself questioning her ability to do so. He is a psychopath that uses his talents of manipulation and control both in killings and in his efforts to intimidate her by continually referencing her as his 13th victim. Dr. Salazar must now figure out how to utilize her skills to explore his psyche without shattering it and possibly fulfilling his ominous prophecy. I am a forensic psychologist and first-time author. For almost 20 years, I have evaluated and counseled inmates with varying criminal and psychiatric histories. I have always aspired to write of the dynamic individuals and experiences I have encountered throughout my career and share it with others. Though this is a fictional story, some elements of this manuscript are based loosely on individuals with whom I have worked in the past. Below, you will find the first five pages of the manuscript. Thank you very much for your time consideration. I would greatly appreciate any feedback or thoughts you may have and look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Vicki. Awesome, Vicki. Thank you. And you know what? Off the top of my head, I can think of about 10 thriller writers who would be desperate to reach out to you as a resource for their research in their own work. Um, I've long been thinking about trying to set up a resource for writers where there are experts in various fields who register on the platform and writers can reach out to them to ask questions, but I don't have the time for that. So if any of you like this idea, please run with that. But uh, You know what? You- I've actually done an event like that. The Nebula Awards in the U.S. do it for science fiction 
fiction writers. And it's so much fun. I did it as like an agent slash, I have a PhD in social work. So authors could jump in and ask me questions about like either of those things. And it was a blast. So if ever you do that, Vicky, you should do it because it's super I would, fun to do. I would totally be into it. I would love People that. People have such weird questions. It's so much fun. <laughs> and, and you would be mentioned in tons of acknowledgements of well-known authors. Books. It's true. And it's a great way to make contact so that down the line when you need them to blurb your book, you reach out exactly. and go, remember how you picked my brain for, for your book. <laughs> that, that's neither here nor there. Okay. Emmy, why, I would don't love it. Us, why don't you let us know what you think of the credit? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think that, yeah, you bring such an interesting perspective to this genre because they're it's obviously an incredibly popular genre book, but there aren't a lot of people who have, you know, like firsthand experience within the industry of like, I would say like the prison industrial system overall who have written like about their experiences. And so I think that that's something that you really, really bring to this book. First of all, I think that's very cool. The thing that I will say is that this is a super long query. And I know that you're not an overly, sometimes I get queries that are super, super long. And I'm like, oh, this is a problem overall, because this is like a 120,000 word manual manuscript like you just are having trouble cutting but your writing is super concise in the book so I know that you can do it so I think you just need to have more confidence in your project honestly I feel like your intro is great your personalization is great but once we get into the actual query itself it feels like you're trying to tell me everything there is to possibly know and you just need to like tighten that up a bit because a lot of it comes through in your in your writing sample anyway and some of it is just stuff that like I would as you read further you're going to get more of the plot line of the book and sort of like what happens. So I would like boil this down to essentials. Like who's your main character? Who are your, uh, the, the one thing that I was a little bit confused by once I got to the writing sample is who the point of view character was and kind of what the format was going to be. Because of the diaries, I was like, are there going to be like epistolic elements to this book or is it going to be like a traditional format? And I wasn't sure, like as I, as I was reading the query and even as I was reading the sample, because there's no way to cram all of that into a short writing sample, right? So that's something that might be helpful to mention in the letter itself backtracking a little bit I think that your title is long I think that you need something that's like you could either like cut it in half just pick one or the other or you could pick something that's like a little bit shorter and snappier but I had trouble picturing it on a cover for a novel especially because like so many thrillers are marketed especially these days as like sort of mass market so you're looking at like a smaller format of book and I just wanted there to be something that like really captured the mood of this book but as I was reading your description I was like is this meant to be more non-fiction is it meant to be more fiction and I think part of my confusion was because most non-fiction books have like really long titles with subtitles and things like that so I think giving it like a really tight title would make it um, stand out a little bit more. And then the other thing was I loved your comps, but I wanted you to give me a little bit more information about like, just in case if people haven't seen the TV show, because you called it the Dexter series. I was like, are there books involved in that too? So just make sure that you like, you can always just call it like the award-winning television show Dexter or whatever, and give us the authors of the books too, just to be a little bit more specific. In terms of your genre, this is something that people do all the time is describe really, really well what the content of the book is, but you haven't given us a precise enough genre. So think about where, when you're saying like it's a completed 77,000 word, perfect. And even the standalone series potential is great. But when you're saying contemporary psychological, that's not like a marker that you would see on a bookshelf. So try and think like if you went into Barnes and Noble or chapters or whatever you have locally, like what shelf would that sit on and give us that genre? Because that'll give us even more information about kind of where, what other kinds of authors you like, what kinds of books you can see like sitting on the shelf next to this one. And other than that, I mean, I thought that the summary and all of that 
was good. It was just too much. So like tighten it up, give us just the essentials and be mindful of your audience too, who you can like, you can really assume that they're like very well read. So make sure that you are using like the most updated kind of language and jargon through there. And I can use some more specific feedback in comments on the page as well. So also uh, Bianca's Kofi readers will see all of those because I could go on and on just because there's a lot of content here. And the other thing that I would add is if you've done any kind of like consultation or sensitivity work on the book, because I love that you're writing from your work experience, but because one of the point of view characters has had like a pretty, like it's an intense, <laughs> you know, the, the, especially the sort of our like antagonist protagonist, the uh, Jonathan is like, like he's had a complex life. And so if those aren't your experiences, have you done any like interviewing or sensitivity reading, or do you plan to with people who have shared experiences with that character? It just shows that you're being proactive if you have, and if you haven't yet, like if you don't have the resources to do that on your own, like you can always note in your query letter that that's something you would be interested in doing or that you plan to do down the line. And I think that that will really enrich kind of, I always find myself asking like, why do people want to tell this story? And I think for you, because you have a personal connection, like that why is sort of there, but I'd like to see it go like a little bit further, if that makes sense. Just a bit more on that, you know, so I've recently finished a novel that includes a transgender character. And so my agency got me one brilliant transgender reader, and then I paid another one myself to do that. So mm-hmm. that, but that's luckily because I had the resources for that. But if you don't, yeah. you can put in the query letter at something you would like to have done. And you hope that the agency can enable you to do that. Yeah. And some publishers will assist with that too. Like even if you're not able to do it before you go on submission, but I like, I personally don't have a problem with people writing characters outside of like their lived experience. We're all artists. You know, I think it's very limiting to think you can only write, you know, what you personally have. I think that's very like, it feels catastrophic to a lot of authors to think like, oh, if I've led a quiet life of my own, I can't write anything that's not that. And that's not, I don't think that's true, but I think it's just about being, you know, approaching it responsibly and, and demonstrating that you're like excited about that process and not kind of just plowing through. But I think that especially because you have all of this professional experience, like it's such an interesting approach to take to the book. And I think it's something that readers would be excited about too. I think a lot of, you know, it is a very saturated market. So whatever it is that makes your book stand out and really unique. I think readers get really excited about that. And and just one last thing before we open it to you, Vicky, for questions is I think something that you kind of buried there was the thing that I was super fascinated about where it's like he insists she's going to be his, what was it, 13th victim? How did you word that again? Just remind me, Vicky. Um, that he, he uh, attempts to intimidate her by referencing her as his 13th victim. I, I feel like that is something that should be quite high up in the in the query letter. I don't think that's something that should be buried. So when you're figuring out what to take out and what to keep, that's something you definitely want to keep and you definitely want to move it even higher up. Okay, so what questions do you have for Emmy, Vicky? Thank you so and much. for my cat I, who is oh. now inviting himself <laughs> in to help. <laughs> I have a lot of questions and a lot of the comments that you made actually address a lot of oh, the good. concerns that I had. So being that I am not trained writer. Um, I struggled a lot with a lot of different things that that you brought up. So the first thing with the title, when I started this thinking that I was going to write this book, mm-hmm. my initial plan was that it was going to be part of a series where each person in the group would have right. their own book. So that was a little naive of me because I was like, I'm going to write an eight book series. And <laughs> 
And it was pointed out to me that that was very naive and nobody would ever accept an April theory. I mean, naive so, maybe, but like, you're not the first person to have the, this enthusiasm, believe me. <laughs> and it, I mean, so, if it down the line, like that is a really cool concept. It's really interesting. So that's why in my mind, it was going to be Diary of a Criminal Mind, basically right. the series. And then each book would be the psyche of one of the characters the individual that's, that's in there right but since but this is not Vicky sorry like even if you think about Louise Penny it's considered the three pine series right um because that's where it takes place so remember that where this takes place that could become the name of the series it doesn't have to be stated in the title a series name tends to become organic and it gets known as something else so you know you, you don't have to be worrying about that just yet Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting a little ahead of myself. I had all these <laughs> plans when I started writing it um, of where it was going to go. Um, Which of the two, Emmy, would you prefer as the title if she were to just pick? I like the I like the name of the character. Like I like the the psyche of Jonathan. Is it Kurs or Cares? Curse, curse. I like that because I feel like that's one that if the character is like, if that character is really what's fascinating about this book, I think that that's a neat kind of connection. And I feel like we've seen Criminal Mind makes me think of a lot of different things that we've seen already. You know what I mean? It's a bit of a callback. And I don't think that's bad, especially as a series name, but I feel like it would stand out more as like a book on its own with like a more specific title. And and also, you know, it's been the fashion sort of the last two years. So who knows if this is going to carry through, but many book titles have got characters' names. They're all about that these days. Yeah, it's all about that these days is like the character name and a reader doesn't know who the hell the character is, but the character's Mm -hmm. name's there in the title. Who knows if that's going to, you know, have longevity or not. Um, But think about, you know, there was the Evelyn Hardcastle and then there was the... Eleanor Oliphant. (laughs) <laughs> Eleanor Elephants, and then there was the other, um, uh, it was the seven marriages or the seven husbands of yes. Evelyn Hugo. So yeah, so so that's something to, to consider. That's quite fashionable now. But Vicky, here's the thing, publishers generally change your title anyway. So you will spend hours agonizing over the perfect title. They'll buy your book and then they'll go, um, no. And then they name it something else. So yeah. okay. <laughs> next question, Vicky. Um, okay, so... The um, the genre was also something I really, really struggled with because I didn't feel like it fell into the psychological thriller genre because we're not. So the whole book, this kind of answers another question that you had too, is mainly his diary entries. It's right. the format of um, his diary entries. So he's explaining his history, his upbringing, mm-hmm. his eventually the the murders that he committed. Right. So I felt like there wasn't that like mystery element to it of like who did it, right? right? Because he's already done it and we know that he's he's committed these acts and he's explaining how he did it. Mm-hmm. So I really struggled because I don't know where something like this would fall. I feel like there is obviously the psychological component of it. And my initial path for the book was that the purpose of it was to explain how mental health and people's upbringing and their situations totally. contribute to criminal behavior. Because, you know, a lot of people just kind of assume these are horrible people and they should be locked away. And, you know, they chose to do what they did. Um, Absolutely. 
And I want to kind of bring this view of, well, this is the circumstances that this Absolutely. person had. So they didn't have a lot of options in their life. So totally. So I, I struggle with where that actually falls, because in my mind, I see it as fictional true crime. Totally. <laughs> um, but that's not a genre. So I, I don't know exactly where it would fall. So I have two answers, one that you're going to like and one that you're not going to like. <laughs> the, fr- the one that you are going to like is that you can just call it suspense. Like that's one that, you know, okay. it's a little bit more of an umbrella term um and it does encapsulate a lot of those like kind of like investigative books but that are yeah more fictionalized rather than based on like you know hard research the answer that you're not going to like is that if you feel that way about your book that's how editors are going to feel about it too and they're going to be like we don't know how to market this and they're not going to buy it (laughs) so like as much as that's a sucky answer to hear i think if you spend some time like reading or even like, I mean, I'm sure that most authors are very well read. So I don't mean to like presume that you haven't done this just to be clear. But if you spend some time like thinking about the titles that you know are comps for your book, like The Silent Patient, like the TV shows that you're referencing also, like any book that you've seen that could be comped um, in like a either a format way or a plot line way and just see how they're being marketed. So like it might not feel 100% right to you on the page, but like, for example, I'm trying to think of the name of the book, but there was a book that came out, I think it's called An Ocean of Minutes a few years ago. It's a Canadian title, but it came out in the US as well. And it's sort of like this speculative story about there's like some time travel in there, whatever. The author I know had originally pitched the book as being like a speculative like time travel book. And her agent and publisher weren't able to find it like a way to kind of pitch it because the reading audience of that genre was not the target audience of the book. It was really more of like a women's fiction audience that they were targeting. The book just had some sort of like magical elements. So they ended up marketing it as a romance because it had a strong romantic plot line and it sold really, really well. But I know that the author sort of felt like conflicted about it being because she was like, I didn't write this as a romance. Like it's not a romance book. It's a, you know, like it's a speculative story, but marketing teams like have their whole, you know, like they have their own ideas about how these things get sold and how they get in the hands of readers. And so if you take a look at the books that you think this one would, you know, appeal to the same readers, then that's probably a good way to find out what genre you should be sort of pitching it as. And also there may be genre conventions within those books that you should consider integrating, consider integrating into your book. So like the apostolic elements are really, really cool. But if the books that you're reading are all sort of like alternate point of views, like alternating back and forth, then maybe make sure that you have that kind of balance so that when a reader picks it up, it won't feel like something that's coming totally out of left field. I hope that's helpful, even if it's a sort of discouraging answer to hear. No, I, but I need to hear it, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is the help that I need. This is why I'm here. Um, I'm glad. <laughs> so, so then in terms of the point of view, as in the opening pages, the chapters that talk about Dr. Salazar and her interaction with Jonathan mm-hmm. Kerr's are third person, right? third person close, I guess. And yes. then the other chapters, which is the majority of the book is, would be considered first person because mm-hmm. it's, it's his diary, um, his diary entries. So do I put on here that it's a dual POV? Is that yeah. considered? Okay. Totally. I would even call it like, this is going to sound very technical, but I would say like dual POV with epistolic elements or something like that so that people are prepared for the diary entries when they come because what might happen is that like people will read your sample and then they'll not realize that the diary is part of the book and when they request the full manuscript they're going to be like oh this isn't what I expected or alternately people who are really into epistolic books aren't going to request it because they don't realize that that's there and it's 
they'll be like, oh, this, like the format isn't what I'm looking for. So I would include all of that. Okay. Okay. Also, Vicky, there's some advice there is sometimes editors and that don't like sort of the epistolary form because they feel like it's a lot of telling rather than showing. And you can take out the dear diary or whatever part, you know, it could be that it's left up to the reader's imagination, kind of who he's speaking to. He's addressing you perhaps in his diary or whatever, but maybe it isn't written as like the dear diary part. It's Mm -hmm. still kind of a diary entry per se, but there's kind of a bit of a mystery as to who he's revealing all of this to, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So, you know, consider that as well in case you do end up with feedback that people are not loving the epistolary form. Mm -hmm. Okay. It is a little bit trendy right now, though, I will say that. But as a reader myself, I don't super dig epistolary. So I like even knowing that an author would be open to different formats, I think would be a good thing. Okay. The, the only, when, when I see emerging writers do it, I get a bit nervous because many of them then fall into telling story mode as opposed yeah. to showing. Um, it becomes all exposition. It becomes this person just telling, 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 which means there aren't scenes. There is no dialogue. There is an action. And that's why when I hear emerging writers doing it, I'm just like, you know, keep in mind that it can't just be, these sections can't be 100% telling. It needs to be some kind of dramatization, etc. And so if you sit down to write it in this diary form, you fall, you just naturally fall into telling mode. So sometimes it's good for the writer to just forget that it's a diary entry and kind of tell it in the most interesting way as if the character were just speaking in first person as opposed to you know doing that but you may have avoided that issue completely Vicky it's just something I want you to keep in mind Mm -hmm. yeah that's good to think about Um, and then there's a lot that goes on in this novel there's a lot of so I guess my my question is if I need a content warning because there is sexual abuse animal abuse murder obviously rape so would that be would you like to see that in the in the query i would include a content warning for anything that's going to happen in your writing sample but for me like i do send out content warnings to editors when i send out my submissions because i know that they're going to be reading it all and that like i don't want them to sit down and be unprepared so what i would do is like if there's content in your eventual writing sample that you send out that like you think people would want to be aware of i would include that and then when they request the full I would include like a just a list of content warnings. People mm-hmm. also get really nervous because they're like, oh, like this is a long list. Like I sometimes have, I ask authors to do content warnings for their manuscripts before I send them out in case I've like forgotten something. And they'll often come back and be like, I'm sorry, this is a lot. But it's not like, for me at least, like I read books knowing that there's going to be content like that in them anyway. You know what I mean? I think anybody who's picking up, like I'm a huge true crime fan. I'm a huge thriller fan. I think anybody who's picking up a book that like starts off with like the premise of this guy has already killed. 12 people and he's going to tell us about it like they're not going to be shocked but I think it can just be a good kind of heads up I had this conversation yesterday actually with a bunch of students because sometimes you know like I have things in my manuscript wish list that I'm like I don't represent books that have this in them but most of my boundaries are pretty flexible it's just that like on the day sometimes things can be hard to read right so like recently this is an unrelated example but I recently lost a pet and so I was reading a query yesterday about a dog and I was like I can't I can't I can't do that I'm sorry and it's not even like I can't do it ever it's just like this is not the week for that you know so I feel like when when you send the full manuscript, if you give a full list, then that at least gives people the chance to be like, okay, I'm in the right headspace to read this or I'm not. And that gives you the best chance at success, honestly, because people will read it when they're feeling good about it and when they know they can kind of like enjoy the aspects of the book that include 
content that might otherwise be sort of provocative. Um, but okay. also there, what I, what I want to add there, and Vicky, I think this is one of the reasons why you definitely didn't submit to Cece, is Cece <laughs> wouldn't even look at a sample of no. any work that has got cruelty to animals. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like if the agent is not even going to want to pick up the book because of the content things, then you do need to tell them yeah, in yeah, the that the novel will have this because you don't want to waste their time and they like the book and they query and then they get to the, you know, animal cruelty part and then they're like, oh no, I'm, I'm not yeah. prepared to even represent it. That's why I would say like, because I think authors are worried sometimes that querying is like a super straightforward process. Like you have one shot and that's it. But I would say once you've requested a full manuscript, like it becomes, at least for me, like much more of a conversation with the author. So I've had authors send me emails. Like when I send out a full request, it's not usually very long because really all I'm saying is like, this is great. Can I see more of it? And so usually I've had authors email me back at that point and be like, I'm absolutely happy to share the full with you. But like, just so you know, like this is the content that's in this book. And I just wanted to make sure you were aware. Is that okay? with you. And I've never said no, I don't think, to be honest, but it's good to kind of have that conversation at that time so that like, yeah, I don't start reading and then get halfway through and be like, oh my gosh, like I can't, you know? Okay. No, perfect. Okay. Vicky, could you give us an overview of what's in those opening pages? Sure. So I start with a prologue, which I know a lot of people don't like. And I think- (laughs) Chop it. Um, Honestly, your first chapter, sorry, I'm interrupting you already, but your first chapter is so much better than your prologue. Just get rid of it for the sample. That's all I ask. (laughs) Okay. So I just want to explain it. Um, So what happened, so this prologue is a scene that happens, a very, an important scene that happens later on in the book, but later on in the book, it's told from the perspective of Dr. Salazar. And this is Jonathan's perspective of that scene. So that's why I have it in there. But I know, I know the prologue. um, (laughs) It's just such a polarizing question. And I think honestly, like when I read your prologue, I was like, because I did read it, I was polite enough to read it, but normally I skip them. I'm not going to lie. And so in, when I read it, I was like, okay, this is actually like, it's because it's short, it's sweet, you know, it's good. But you're, the first line of your opening chapter is super strong. I much would have rather be hit with that right off the bat than, than the prologue. So I would say like once, maybe the prologue will work really well once the reader has the context, like once they've, you know, once they know that like they're getting this dual POV and that they, you know, there's this other scene later, but I would start like for your sample, I would just start right off the bat at chapter one. Okay. Would you, would you read us your opening paragraph? Um, The inmates were led to their cages, each escorted by two guards. Dr. Emily Salazar watched from the dayroom window as the half circle of eight empty individual cells, or cages as they were so affectionately called, were filled. She kept her eyes on each offender and mentally recited his name, age, and committing offense as his leg irons were locked to the floor and his waist chains were cuffed to the metal stool. Charles Burns, age 47, sexual assault, serial. Darius Jones, age 43, voluntary manslaughter. Joseph Wright, age 24, first-degree murder, mass. Jose Alvarez, age 33, capital murder, gang-related. Mike Tivoli, age 42, second-degree murder. Hector Ruiz Carrillo, age 29, unlawful restraint and aggravated sexual assault. Kevin McGill, age 39, armed robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. Jonathan Kurz, age 58, first-degree murder, serial. We're going to cut out all of the names. 
Mm, and right. <laughs> then you will have the perfect opening okay. paragraph. So this again was yeah when because I of was the series, right? On ha- right, and yes. because throughout the book, I I reference some of these other people in totally kind of a foreshadowing way of like no no and that part's great. Was, okay, honestly, like I so I was saying to Bianca last time we chatted, I have trouble sometimes giving feedback on writing samples because I can never decide if I should do it from the point of view of a query or the point of view of the book because those are two sort of different things. But from the point of view of a query, we want like your most, and honestly, like, I think it will translate better in the book overall. I think that like bringing in this content later, much like I said to Tyler earlier is like spot on, but the things that don't have to do with your plot in your opening, like just chop them. (laughs) You want basically for... So I always tell people to picture like agents, editors, whatever, like we do lots of reading and we kind of like squeeze it in wherever it's possible. So I have a friend who does almost all of her query reading while her toddler is falling asleep at night. So she'll like sit in the chair, like while her kid is falling asleep and like burn through them. And I kind of do the same thing. I like sprint through them when I have like, you know, 20 minutes to spare. I'm like, okay, what am I, what do I have like building up back here? Because I don't like to keep people waiting forever. But as people are reading, like they have so many other things going on, like you need to grab them with that sample. So I would say like really make sure that every word in there is pulling your reader into that story. And I think that like the story parts that you have in here are pretty good, but the like there's too much kind of description and detail for an opening. So like I really want to start like in the action of the story. And like I wouldn't cut these chapters or these sections from the book, but I would maybe restructure them so that you get like a really compelling sample and then later we can get kind of the information and the the exposition that we're getting in parts of the section parts of this and, section right and now. The important thing there is, you know, the reader wants to feel this tension of knowing this woman is pretty much locked in yeah. with these what the reader is going are very dangerous people. And so they are feeling like stress and anxiety on her behalf. So at that point, they don't care about the names of each of these people. I know you are trying to humanize them very much. And that's what's going to come out in the rest of the book. But in that particular moment, just say, what am I trying to achieve right now? And remember that readers' eyes glaze over if they're confronted with too many names. Because then they're like, oh, shit, am I supposed to remember all these names? So you don't need that. You just need to be like, you know, with men who have been found guilty of, and then you list some of the things. Okay, that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes sense. Okay, okay so sorry, we've interrupted you so many times. What, so did sorry. The, what did the rest of that scene contain so that the listeners know before Emmy discusses the rest of it? Um, so basically, it's Dr. Salazar meeting with this group of eight inmates for the first time in order to start a group with them that she is hoping to use the information that she obtains to understand um, what leads to criminal behavior and what is it the nature of versus nurture, you know, how much of it is circumstance, how much of it is biological or mental illness. So in the first few pages, she's meeting with everybody, but the person that really sticks out to her is Mr. Kurz. And there's description of their interactions. He's trying to kind of control the group and dominate the group. And she's trying to figure out how much to let him do that because she's trying to build rapport, but she's also trying to set boundaries. So that's basically the first, the first pages is, you know, from that explaining what the group is going to be in in their first meeting. And Emmy, what you were saying earlier was one of my questions about info dumping, right? So like, I know that there's a lot of description in here. Yeah, As I'm writing it, I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem right, but I I just didn't know where else to put it. So No, I totally understand. And you'll find 
like later in the story, you'll find opportunities for that. But I would say like the way that you describe this section is what is how you want it to read. So like that internal conflict that she's having between like, like Bianca said earlier, there's like an external conflict sort of that's building where, you know, this one character is kind of trying to dominate the room. And so that's all happening with like these eight people. And then there's also what your character is thinking, which is like, how do I build rapport and also set appropriate boundaries? Those two things need to come through. Like we need to see that more than anything else in here. The structure of the group and all of that, like we can definitely get that later. And I would jump into the scene like where your character is like trying to figure out how to like balance this thing and where the other, I mean, because you basically have two protagonists here, like your other main character, we see him already trying to be like a like an important figure, right? And I think that that will bring out the main conflict of the book, which is really, as Bianca said, this idea that like the, you know, one protagonist is trying to sort of scare the other protagonist, but also get their attention in like kind of the only way he knows how to do, right? And that's like really the interesting part of this story is that the only way he knows how to get any kind of attention, positive or negative, is by being this like scary, violent person. But we really want to see that tension, right? It might not be his first choice, but that's like how he knows how to navigate the world. And so that's what I'd love to see come through because I do think you like you definitely touch on it, but there's too much kind of like logistics in the sample. And those can come out like even in, you know, like if you were to show us the scene, it might be a little confusing, like where, like what's going on. But, you know, you can show like the therapist in a meeting with her supervisor later being like, okay, so what is it that you're doing with these guys? Like, this is a weird approach. Like, tell me about it or whatever that like there are loads of different ways or like she goes out to dinner later and tells her friend about this new program she's starting or, you know, there's lots of ways to kind of work that in. But I think that for the purposes of the sample, we really want to see the dynamics more than like the structure of the story or the structure yeah, of the like book. Immerse us in sync, immerse us yeah. in the power struggle between them, in her inner struggle. That's what we want to see playing out. We want to be nervous for her. We want to be like, oh, shit, is she, is she going to be able to handle this? We want her to kind of be doubting herself and questioning herself. Even as she's struggling with him for power and he's struggling. And that is where the magic in that scene is. All the mm. other context and stuff can be explained later. It's amazing the amount of blanks readers can fill in without yeah. all that context. And and here's the problem, Vicky, with you being an expert, you know all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so most writers, we're making shit up. And so we don't really, we don't really know all this stuff, which is why we don't include it. So this is sometimes the problem when an expert writes something because they know so much. Yeah. And those details will really, really enrich it down the line, I think. It's just that right now we're getting like too much of it up front. But I would like, it's interesting to me as well, I, I would say keep in mind who's reading the book as you're editing, because sort of the same as Tyler's sample, most of your readers, I mean, like we know that most true crime readers and most thriller readers are women. We know that, you know, we know what women's lives are like. They're super busy. They have families, kids, work, all kinds of responsibilities. So if you picture kind of like what is going to hook I always picture like a woman like standing over her stove, like making dinner. Kids are like teenagers are like blaring music in the background. She's got like headphones in listening to an audiobook. Like, how are you going to make her care about this character that by instinct, she's probably like, oh, this dude is a bad dude, you know? So I think that showing that tension is really, really important right off the bat. Um, so you you did answer a lot of my questions. I'm and glad. so as just real quick, if I were to shorten the first um, mm-hmm. paragraph and then because the second chapter starts with his writing. Oh, 
oh, in the nice. diary. Oh, nice. Good. Yeah. So would I, is it better to bring in the diary entry so that they yeah. fit into the first five pages? Totally. So that you get a whole. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And like, if there's a natural, you don't need to include like the whole second chapter, but if there's sort of like a natural stopping point so that people can get like a taste of both. I love it. Like when I, it stresses me out when I read a query and it says that it has like multiple point of view or it has like, like documents as part or like illustrations as part, but I don't get to see those. I'm like, but I need to see those to know whether I like the book or not. Right. And so like in, in a lot of ways, it'll strengthen your query, I think, to have both kind of formats and and narrators in the sample. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I thank you. really appreciate this. This is great. No, it was great to read. And thank you so much for sharing your work. So, Emmy, thanks so much for joining us twice oh, thank now. You. We, we hope to have you back again in the future. To Tyler and to Vicky, thanks for being brave enough to join us on the show. Uh, right. So let's go to today's guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder 
that we've got the virtual retreat coming up in January, the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that again look at the website biancamaray.com and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. As a former entertainment reporter for Newsday and the New York Daily News, today's guest has written her fair share of stories about the lives and deaths of the rich and famous. She has a master's degree in creative writing from Emerson College, and her work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, Entertainment Weekly, The Atlantic, Today.com, and elsewhere. Dava Shastri's Last Day is her first novel, and she lives in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Kirtana Ramazetti. Hi, so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's wonderful to get to chat to you. I love debut authors. The excitement that surrounds a debut novel coming out is always extremely compelling. And I always love watching all the buildup and, and everything that surrounds that. So let's start with that. Could you tell us a bit about the genesis of this novel and your journey to publication? Sure. Um, so my idea for this novel came from my time as an online entertainment reporter. So often what we had to do, uh, a big part of our job was to cover the passings of celebrities. And as part of that coverage, we had to um, be attuned to social media reaction anytime a person passed away. And so anytime I saw the collective outpouring of grief and the shock and the sadness, um, it always made me think, you know, do other notable people see this reaction? And do they ever wonder what would be said about them when their time came? <laughs> so it's a little bit of an odd, odd idea, but it kind of always stayed with me to the point that I was like, well, maybe what if there's somebody who's so obsessed with their how they're perceived by their world and their legacy that they decided to do something very extreme, which is announce their death early so um, they could learn what is said about them in their obituaries. And so that was the genesis for this novel. And when did you begin writing it? How long did it take you? So I've been in media for several years and eventually I got burned out. So I decided to maybe try to figure out a different direction for myself. And so around 2018, I just thought, you know what? While I do that and go freelance, let me also try to work on a novel because that's been my dream of mine for so long. I did get my MFA in creative writing after all. So this time when I decided to go for it, it's been my third time writing a novel in about 20 years. And so I'm like, well, if I'm going to do it this time, well, let me like, let me really go for it in the sense that I'm going to pour into everything that I've always been interested in or preoccupied by or fascinated by. So there's, you know, there's music and pop culture and celebrity gossip in this novel. Also themes of family and legacy. And so I took all these things that were kind of, you know, disparate and hopefully tried to make them into a cohesive storytelling. And by taking all these things I've always been interested in and made it for a really enriching and even like a fun writing experience for me. And in terms of your getting an agent and that part of the journey to publication, for our listeners, Cece offered representation early on because she loved this book so much. And then you went another way. And what I love about that is knowing 
that there are sometimes writers out there who have tons of options because we've said it multiple times on the podcast, the power tends to lie with the literary agents, not with the writers themselves. So it's not many of us who get to pick and choose. So could you tell us a bit about that as well? And and what your criteria was, what made you finally decide to go the way you did? Because maybe there's listeners out there who'll be as lucky as you one day. It's a pretty <laughs> interesting story. So I started querying in February of 2020. And so when I was looking for an agent, I did a lot of research about the best way to query agents. And so I found that it was really important to find people, of course, who were interested in reading the stories I was, you know, that my book was about. And mine is a family saga and there's a lot of family dysfunction. So this is what I was looking for with agents in terms of every web, every agent's website says exactly what they're looking for, what their wish list is. Cecilia was one of them. And I remember she specifically had said on her manuscript wish list that she was interested in books that reminded her of succession. I was like, perfect, that's me. <laughs> so I made to definitely ensure, uh, made sure to include that in my query letter to her. And I think she wrote back fairly quickly and she was very excited by the prospect of it. I queried 26 agents and I received four rep- um, represent offers of representation. And ultimately what came to me, I just spoke, oh my gosh, it's such a, like you were saying, it's so weird to find, be in the position where you're choosing instead of hoping someone chooses you. And all the agents I spoke to were amazing, including Cece. And um, ultimately, I think I just wanted somebody who was based in New York City. And um, that was the agent. So I chose um, I chose to go with Andrea Sandberg with Harvey Klinger Literary Agency. But I thought Cecilia was wonderful. And that's to that end. We've actually still stayed in touch this day because I just think I admire her so much. And we had such a connection off the bat. In terms of what happened next, so I received, um, I signed with my agent um, March 10th. And the next day, the world was plunged into chaos in the sense that that was the day that Tom Hanks announced he had COVID and, you know, um, the NBA canceled their entire season. So it was like, oh, wow, one day I achieved my like the biggest dream of my life. And the next day, like, oh, my God, madness. <laughs> so it's a very interesting, very weird, chaotic time. If that's not a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. And also, you know, I, I think most writers out there, there's, there's definitely those who are the exception. But for me, I was always terrible at sports. And so whenever we had to do sports at school, I was always, you know, last to be picked for some team because I sucked so much and nobody wanted me on their team. And like you say, to have that turned around and you get to do the picking is amazing. And yes, Cece, she loves this book so much. She can't wait for it to come out. And she definitely wants more people to to read it. And she said, I'm going to say hi. So if you got an agent in the March, that happened quite quickly because it's normally about 18 months from when a book gets bought to when it comes out. So I'm assuming you guys went out on submission and it was snapped up immediately. How did that work? Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, So after I signed with my agent, she thought, well, you know, the world is kind of crazy right now. Everybody was transitioning to working from home and Zooms and everything. So she's like, let's just wait a week and then we'll go out on submission. So we waited a week. And then by the end of the first week we went out on submission, we had an editor had reached out and said she was interested. So another week passed. And then on April 1st, she made an offer, a preempt. So that's how fast it turned out to be, which is again, crazy. And I think it worked in your favor that they were all kind of at home then, because I feel like after a year and a half or two years of them being at home, it's hardly problematic. They're overworked. They're 
completely stressed. And I feel like this book that all takes place pretty much on this island, it's kind of claustrophobic. You know, there's this claustrophobic feel to it because everybody's stuck on this island together. And I feel like editors were reading it and they were like, yeah, I'm starting to be able to relate to how this is going to feel. So uh, I think that really tapped into something there as well. Now, there are two elements of craft that I want to discuss with you because you've done them so incredibly well. And I know you listen to the podcast and you know we like picking people's brains about how they did something well. So one of the things that I want to discuss is you introduce a lot of characters very quickly. Talk us through like how many, I mean, I know that Dava is the main, main character, but you have this whole ensemble cast. So let's talk through how many characters there are in in the family who are there with her at the home. Sure. So there's Dava herself, of course. And then her four children, RV is the eldest, followed by Sita, Kali, and Rev. RV brings his partner and their twin, their two daughters. Uh, Sita brings her husband and her twin sons. And then Kali comes by herself and Rev brings her his fiance, Sandy. So overall, that's that's a lot of people, about 10, 11 people, which was a lot of people to introduce into a story fairly quickly. And it was definitely one of the challenges of in writing this. I know you lo- love to talk a lot on the podcast about panting versus plotting. So for me, what really made a difference, so I've written two novels before this that didn't go anywhere, and I had pants them, kind of came up with it as I went along. And ultimately, they just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. But when I decided to really try to write this novel, I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I need to do it right, because it's just such a complicated story. Not only are there so many characters in it as a family saga, but... Also, I'm talking about the entire sweep of one woman's life. So I have to be really organized even before I write the first page. So to that end, I wrote um, a timeline, a chronology of events from birth to death for my main character. So I always knew exactly what was happening in any particular year in her life. I wrote a character spreadsheet where I tracked the arc. I tracked Daba's arc, but also each character's arc throughout the course of their novel, their personality, and the relationships to the other characters as well. And then I did a full outline of every chapter. And so by the time I started writing, I knew exactly where the story was going. I never had any doubt about what would happen next. Because so often when you're drafting a novel, you're you can hit a point where like, I don't know what to, I don't know where to go next with this character, or next with this plot point. And I never had that hesitation because I always had all these resources to fall back on that you created even before I started drafting. So this is how you as a writer get to know your characters and get to know where they're going, etc. But did you use certain tricks or did you have to rewrite beginning chapters as you were introducing them to the reader? Because the reader, when they first meet characters, they're going in blind. They don't know these characters' backstories. All they know is, okay, Dava has these kids and these kids are married to whoever. How did you say to yourself, okay, this is how I am going to introduce these characters? Maybe one every few pages, a whole bunch at once. What was was your approach to that? Because it worked incredibly well. I'm really glad to hear that because I definitely worked on the opening chapters the most in terms of my revisions. I always knew that I wanted the novel to start the way it does with Dava reading her own obituary. That was always very clear in my mind. But in order to do that, it was was going to be hard to introduce all the other characters. So a reader made a really great suggestion, which is like, why don't you go back in the second chapter three days earlier when they first arrived to the island and have it be through the eyes of the person who's new to to their surroundings, which is Rev's fiance, Sandy. This is her first time meeting the entire Shastri person. 
uh, family. So it was great to kind of meet them, meet the characters through her eyes and get such sense of how, not only how she views them as an outsider, but also how the character dynamics between siblings, between in-laws and between Daba and her children. I thought that was a very effective way to kind of introduce you to this world and not just the characters, but also the setting, because I do set it on a private island that is very kind of singular in its own way and reflective of the family and their history. So that ended up working out really well. That was great advice from from that early reader, because especially even if you'd gone back three days, if you'd done it from the point of view of one of the children, of course, once you've been in somebody's life for an extended period of time, you almost stop seeing them in a certain way. They're just so-and-so to you. They aren't so-and-so who's taller, who's shorter, or who's better looking, or not as good looking as so-and-so. And so an outsider's perspective, it was really an awesome way to do that. And you change the point of view throughout. So we've got third person, but it's kind of third person close, depending on the chapter, depending on the perspective that we're getting. So that was always something you planned to do, or did it start off sort of more third person omniscient, and then it became close, or was that very purposeful? That was definitely purposeful. I thought it was really important to show uh, the arc of each character and their evolution, their dynamics with their their mother and the other characters, and the kind of growth they go on themselves through the course of the novel. And I thought the only way to do that was to do third person close or third person limited. So yeah, from the very beginning, it was I was, and that was why again outlining was so important in terms of deciding okay, this is going to be Reb's chapter or this is going to be Dava's chapter, and trying to decide when I'm going to tell each each character story because again, there are so many characters. And just figuring out why it's important to tell when this event happens in this course of the novel, why is it important to tell it from this character's point of view? And so how did you decide? Was it the character with the highest stakes? Was it the character who could reveal something you wanted revealed to the reader at that point? If you've got such a big ensemble cast, how do you decide in that scene or in that chapter whose perspective you're going to use? What was your criteria? Well, for me, what was interesting about having Dava and her four children is I felt like each child represents something significant about what I want to explore in terms of family dynamics, especially when you're a part of a family with so much wealth and privilege. And with that comes, you know, a lot of expectations about who you'll be as part of a member of this family. So that's how I kind of decided which chapter would be guided by which, or be seen through the eyes of which character. If I want to explore a certain idea, like if perhaps if, for example, it's like Dava's personal life is kind of being mined and they're, they're, the whole the whole family is learning more about who she is and what her secrets really are, then I would do it through the, cha- the point of view of her daughter, Kali, who is the one who's most uh, invested in learning who her mother truly is beyond this persona that she presents to the world. So that's how I really decided how to structure my novel and choose which point of view with each chapter is by thinking about what do I want to reveal here to the reader and what's also at stake for the character by learning the information she learns or he or she learns in this chapter. Amazing. And how did you decide on the timeline? So it's not often we read novels that are based so far into the future. So, you know, again, in the beginning, did it start as a present day story or was it always going to be in the future and why? So, yeah. So when I first started writing this novel, like when you first start writing a novel and you don't have any publishing background, you're really just writing it for yourself and you don't know if anyone's going to read it. So for me, again, this was going back to like writing the novel that would would make me want to keep writing it basically. And a part of that was I wanted my main character to have the same pop culture and music references that I do because it was really I really love music and if you read the novel you'll see that there's a lot of music in this novel so I really want to imbue the novel with songs and music that are important to me that I think will also be important 
to my main character. And to do that, <laughs> I had to set the novel 20 years um, ahead. So she would be a certain age at the end of her life. And then um, when we go back to her throughout her life, she would have uh, the musical references that uh, line up with the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And so when I came time to actually publish a book, one of the big miracles of this whole book, because I know it's unusual <laughs> to have a book set 20 years in the future, but it was so important to me because the music, musical references in this book are so important to me. So I was very happy that I was able to keep the timeline as is. Yeah, because nobody wants to read damn COVID stories. So people are like, yeah, let's skip ahead, man. This is great. This is great. But when you do that, okay, so this is what I love discussing with writers, because for our listeners, remember that every decision you make about your manuscript, about your novel, is one that you have to make very purposefully. There has to be a reason. If someone asks you, you have to be able to defend that reason. But then when you go one way, there are going to be other factors that you need to consider because you've gone that way. So if you're basing a story 20 years in the future, you need to understand that technology is going to be different then, the world's going to be different then. And so you have to pay way more attention to world building than if you had set the novel in the present day. So how did you get around that in terms of going, okay, well, I've now got to come up with some world building things. Like how's the world going to look in 20 years? Yeah, that was one of the first things I really I had to figure out immediately is if I really wanted to stick to my guns and have it be this kind of time frame, then I have to try to envision what the world will look like 20 years from now. And one of the ways I hope I aim to get around it is by actually setting the events on a private island away from the rest of the world. So I didn't have to address too much about what the world would be like in that day and age. Um, I also had Dava be very not into technology. <laughs> so her children also remark on how old fashioned the house is and how limited the technology is. And that was my other way of trying to kind of skirt around the idea of trying to address what the world would be like 20 years from now. But I did do a lot of research about climate change and how they expect climate change to have an impact on the planet in the 2040s. And I did find right now the home is, the private island is actually based on a real concept of a floating island that you can actually purchase right now or people who can afford to purchase it can purchase right now. So it's a real thing. And I did a lot of research about how it works and how they're environmentally sound and how they could potentially withstand anything that comes from uh, the effects of climate change. So there's a lot of real world research that went into it. But in the end, I also try to find a way where by having my characters isolated in one location away from the rest of the world, I didn't really have to address too much what the world actually looked like 20 years from now. Yeah, so there are genius ways, again, that you can work around things depending on the kind of person your character is. So that was really, really uh, a good move to go, okay, well, the technology is going to be very different, but I don't want to date this book in terms of technology because in 10 years, I still want people reading this and not saying, well, this is the biggest letter ship. This is not the technology we have. So to say, okay, I'm going to have a character who is not into technologies, kind of a technophobe, but also has a good reason to not want anyone else in the house to have their devices as well. So, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but there's great ways with story and characterization to work around things that you perhaps don't want to have to deal with. Something else that I loved with what you did, and it's something that I have taught in my backstory class, is that there are really organic ways to introduce backstory, as opposed to a character just sitting down and telling, telling, telling all the stuff that happened in the past. So even from the beginning, you have these obituaries and you have, you know, the media reporting on her life. And of course, that's what the media does when they report on someone's life. They sum up their marriages and the key events in their lives and the businesses they owned and the children they had, etc. And for me, that was a really smart way of a 
organically putting in that backstory so the reader had it immediately, but that it didn't feel like some kind of info dump. Was that something that you were sort of strategically planning on doing, or was it something that was a byproduct of being able to write about such a famous person? Uh, I think a little bit of both. I think if we're going to have a character who um, makes this audacious move just so she can read her obituaries, we're going to have to read her obituaries and see the news coverage. And so I thought this would be by having these short interstitials uh, starting each chapter, it kind of gives you a glimpse of how the world is reacting to Dava's death and the perception that is being uh, has held about her. And it also just gives me a chance because all the action is so isolated in this one in this one location by having each chapter began with these, like whether it's a newspaper article or obituary or just a quote, it kind of lets the rest of the world in so you can see what's happening around them as they're kind of all hunkered down trying to figure out what the hell to do because our mother just did some something completely insane. Yeah, and uh, last question that I want to ask, and this pertains to the music side of it, and then what I loved was that there is an artist out there who's written this song called Dava, and there's a lot of speculation as to why did he write a song about her? Were they having an affair? What was happening? And that immediately made me think of Carly Simon and Warren Beatty in terms of uh, You're So Vain. So was that kind of your inspiration for that? Uh, Yeah. So for me, when I was first thinking about who Dava was and why her plan would backfire on her, because she has a certain hope of how she'll be perceived by the world in terms of her philanthropic efforts. But for the world to kind of go into a frenzy in terms of their interest in her after she quote unquote passes away, she has to have some some juicy secrets related to her life. And I thought, well, you know, nothing makes people more interested in other people than celebrity gossip and pop culture. So I thought it was perfect to use a song in that way because there's so much speculation that could be come out of a song like that, especially if it's about if it has the same name as this person. Like you said, there's a long, rich history of songs. I mean, we just see it right now with Taylor Swift and all too well, the 10 minute version that came out. There's, a, there's a always a lot of interest whenever a song is written about another person and it kind of the tidbit that we learn about that person and that dynamic and that relation based, based on what's um, conveyed in that song. So that's why I decided to have, I, since music is so important to me anyways, I just thought it made sense. If she's going to have these two biggest secrets that are revealed, I wanted one of them to be related to pop culture and music and celebrity gossip in a way. And so a pop song was a perfect vehicle for that. Yeah, and it made me think about how, I think this is why as readers, we love unreliable narrators because every person who's ever written a song about somebody else is telling us a very short story from an unreliable narrator's perspective. You hear this love song and it's about this person who did you wrong and how they broke your heart and how awful they are. And then you sometimes wonder, well, if they got to write a song, I wonder what the their version of, of events would be. But of course, we don't get that. We get this very unreliable narrator whose heart is broken and we get it from their perspective. So, so that's always interesting. One last question before I have to let you go is I absolutely loved this cover. Um, and the thing is, is that, you know, we've been seeing lately a whole bunch of authors of color, women especially, who are bringing out books and they're doing these weird abstract kind of things on the cover because I don't know it's like do they not want to put people of color on the covers like I'm trying to figure out what the hell they're trying to do with this um for some covers it works for others it doesn't yours is an incredibly striking cover could you for our listeners who obviously can't see it could you just describe it to us and and tell us a bit of the of the evolution of the cover sure so the cover is Dava the main character she's an Indian American woman the coverage depicts her 
yeah, yeah. So in the novel, she's 70 years old, but the cover depicts her much younger. Um, and she's evincing a lot of the attitude. She's wearing sunglasses. She's wearing jumkas, which are South Indian earrings. And she just has, she looks very mysterious. And so, and there's a really bright pink background in the cover. So yes, it is, it's an illustrated portrait of her and it is completely eye-catching and brilliant. And I was so happy when I received this cover because I had no idea <laughs> what it was going to look like. I had sent in some suggestions of what I thought, but, and when this came, and I was floored. I was so happy. And like you said, a lot of covers are just kind of abstract, or I've just heard them described as kind of blobby. So um, I was happy to have, because Dava is such a singular character, I love that the cover reflects that. And you can kind of just kind of get a sense of who she is just by looking at the cover. So yeah, kudos to whoever designed this cover. It's not often on the podcast that I'll talk about the cover because mostly we don't have any say over that as authors. We normally get a cover and they're like, well, we hope you like it because this is what the cover is going to be. So it's great that you even sent in some suggestions and even got any say at all. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, Sarah, Congdon designed the cover and I'm eternally grateful because it's the cover of my dream is something I couldn't even imagine so yeah you're right we never even get a lot of uh, feedback or say and so this was a dream truly yeah so for our listeners who are also trying very much to become debut authors who are you know trying to to get the agent to get the, the the publishing deal what advice do you have for them because you know you've got those two burner novels those starter novels that you gave up on and then you came back to this one what's what's your advice for them going forward um, I think a couple of things. One is when I was writing this novel, I always had this idea in my head. And this is based on my two previous novels, writing those novels. If I'm bored writing it, <laughs> then the reader is going to be bored reading it. So I was trying to find a way to make it interesting for me. And if I ever encountered like a certain chapter or a certain section, I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like writing this part. And I'm like, well, how do I make it interesting for myself? And so that really helped me a lot in terms of just finishing this draft and getting through it and that. I also do think this will be like the best writing experience in my life because I really did. It was so personal to me. And I think that's another thing I would say to um, people who would like to publish is make it personal to yourself. Don't follow trends or what you think is really publishable right now. I think if you make it personal to yourself, it really shows and uh, readers will pick up on that. And then finally, I think it's really important to find a literary community. I myself didn't find one until after I got my book deal and I, um, I joined groups of, of fellow debut authors. And it's been really tremendous just having other people to bounce off of and get ideas and advice and that camaraderie. And I wish I had that earlier when I was writing it. So I would just say, try to find that community as early as you can. Excellent, excellent advice. And so for our listeners, Dava Shastri's last day, it's getting tons of buzz. It's making so many lists. I think it's even being long listed for the other oh, Center for Fiction's first novel prize. Yeah. Yes, amazing. And and I'm seeing it now all over the media. So yep, for our listeners, get it. You're going to absolutely love it. I've loved it. And what a joy it's been to chat to you today. Thanks so much for taking the time out to, to share all, all of this wisdom with us. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.